0: Today's scripture reading is found from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. In the third year of reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, and Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, Or with the wine that he drank therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself and god gave daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs and the chief of the eunuchs said to daniel i fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the ewes who are of your own age so would you endanger my head with the king then daniel said to the steward from whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the ewes who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the ewes who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the
1: Lord. This morning, we start a brand new series on the book of Daniel. This is our series for the fall. It'll be entitled Faithful in Exile. Now, usually in the fall, we focus on something that will provide us with a sense of direction and vision as a church. As I was thinking and praying this summer about where we could focus, I could think of no other book that fit our needs, that fit our challenges, than the book of Daniel. I want to go ahead and give you my summary of the message of the book of Daniel here up front, and I'll put that up on a slide. Here's the main message of the book of Daniel. It's this, even when it doesn't seem like it, God is in control and he will give us the strength to be faithful, even in times of crisis, even when it doesn't seem like it, even in a pandemic, even in a pandemic that stretches on, that reaches from every corner of the globe, even in an election year with so much division, even if candidate X wins in November, even if candidate Y wins, in November, even as we lament injustice, its long history, and its continued impact in our country, even when church as normal seems like a distant memory, even when life as normal seems like we can barely remember it, even then, God is in control, Daniel says, and He will give us the strength to remain faithful in times of crisis. If you're not a Christian and you're listening, so glad that you're listening in to these messages, the book of Daniel will give you reasons for faith, reasons to believe in times of crisis. And I hope to show you that as we go. Let's begin by looking here at the story of Daniel in verse one, it begins like this. It begins where the book of the Kings left off. The history of Israel is recorded in the book of Kings, and Daniel really picks up right after that book ends. In the Hebrew order of of the canon, the, the organization of the books, according to the Hebrew order, Daniel is actually not found in the prophets, but instead is found in the history. Here we find... The story beginning at the darkest and lowest point in the history of Israel, in a time of great crisis. Here it says in verse 1 that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came and conquered Judah and Jerusalem completely and totally. And he carried off some of the people back to Babylon and into exile. Daniel was one of the first of the Jewish people to go into exile. And we need to understand what exile meant for Daniel for a believer at this time to see the relevance of the book for us. In addition to living in a culture, being taken to a culture that didn't share his beliefs or practices, even more specifically being in exile for Daniel meant these three things. Now listen to these. It meant the loss of normal worship. They no longer had their normal spiritual practices and rhythms. Look at verse two says there was no more temple. It was destroyed. No more priesthood and sacrifice then. No more festivals to go to in Jerusalem. All the normal structure for worshiping God was gone for Daniel and these exiles. Spiritually disorienting in a major way. The loss of normal worship. And secondly, it meant a crisis of faith. Every believer in the time of Daniel experienced a crisis of faith at some level. Things that happen in their lives and in the world that they never could have imagined God allowing to happen. It's all here in the first three verses. Their their king was defeated. He was humiliated. The city the very center of, of Israel, Jerusalem, was conquered. The temple was gone. The leaders were carried away, all gone. The people were subjugated. They were colonized. It was like going back to Egypt all over again. And they were thinking, where is God? How could he possibly allow this to happen? How could this possibly be a part of his plan? The loss of normal worship, a crisis of faith, and then there was immersion in political idolatry. To live in Babylon was to live under intense political pressure, to look to the political leaders and the political system, either as the great savior to hope in or as the great enemy to defeat. And to destroy. This was Daniel's world and he was suddenly thrust into these three things, taken from what was normal and comfortable, a pretty good life that he had in Jerusalem, into exile. Can you see the relevance of these things for us today? The loss of normal worship? Check. Crisis of faith at some level? Check. Political idolatry being immersed in that check and Daniel shows us the way when all these things are happening to be faithful even in the midst of exile and crisis in the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament Peter the leader of the early church he writes to new Christians and he calls them and he tells them that they are exiles that no matter what place they live in that no matter when they were living they We're exiles in this present world, that no matter what, they would not fully be home. And it carries true for us. No matter where we live, what nation and culture, no matter when we live, in a time of crisis or suffering or relative calm, we are exiles. We are not home. And when we're going through crisis, this experience of living in exile feels all the more real to us. So many of us are feeling like, am I even home? What is going on when all that we considered normal has been lost or disrupted? In times of crisis, it's all the more important that we remember in order that we don't lose our faith or lose our witness. How is it that we can be faithful in exile as exiles? And Daniel is going to show us. This morning we're gonna look at chapter one We're gonna look at three things that chapter one shows us about life in exile, about being faithful in exile. First, the temptations in exile. Secondly, the truth we need in exile. And finally, we'll look at how we can triumph even in exile. So first, the temptations we face. To show us how to be faithful in exile, the book of Daniel begins by describing the temptations the believer will face in exile. So we will be ready for them and able to identify them when they come. There are two main temptations that Daniel and his friends faced. The temptation to assimilate on the one hand, and the temptation to withdraw on the other hand. The temptation to assimilate. This is the one that's more obvious from the story. Look at verse 3. There we see that in order to fully conquer the Israelite people, Nebuchadnezzar had a very specific strategy. In verses 4 and 5, unpack what that is. He took the best, he took the brightest of Israel, and he put them in a three-year training program to Babylonize them, <laughs> which means to fully assimilate them into the beliefs and the practices and the ways of Babylon, right? Babylonian belief and culture. The idea behind this is if he assimilates the leaders and the influencers, the rest of the people will soon follow, and he will have fully conquered this nation and this people." So, the pressure on Daniel and his friends to assimilate, to either lose their faith or to hide their faith, was great. It was so intense. Daniel was given the opportunity, as we see here, to live a very comfortable and successful Babylonian life. Verse 5 says, He was offered the the king's food a portion of the food of the king was offered to daniel and his friends in this assimilation program this assimilation process went so far as to renaming them naming them after the babylonian gods now what we see here is that in any culture the temptation to assimilate is great it's strong and it's powerful there is a temptation to hide our identity and our beliefs, if they're not shared by the wider culture, if they won't lead us to success and greater comfort, there's temptation to fit in, to enjoy acceptance and the comfort that assimilation gives. But in verse eight, we see that Daniel resisted the temptation to assimilate. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or wine. Now, many scholars see this as Daniel's way to maintain the Jewish dietary laws. And that could be going on here, could be part of the reason. But the thing is, wine wasn't forbidden in the Jewish law. So it may be better to see this as a statement of allegiance, a way to show for Daniel and his friends that they depended not on the king and his food and his comfort, but that they depended on God so that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't get credit for the success that they had or their health. But God would. This meant they had to sacrifice that good food. This meant standing out. But this was the way they resisted the temptation to assimilate. There are many ways that we can apply this today. I'm going to pick one. It's just one that doesn't have much controversy attached to it. I say that tongue-in-cheek because I want to talk about the great temptation we are facing of political assimilation. In our country, the political divisions are maybe stronger and more intense than ever. The temptation to pick a side is great and strong. The potential to align our faith with one side or the other is great and strong. If we do not resolve not to defile ourselves, to use the language of Daniel, we will get swept into it. How do we know? if we're struggling, if we're um, prone to the temptation of political assimilation. Well, we know we are politically assimilated if we are predictable, if we predictably always align with one side or predictably always align with the other and go down the checklist. If we only get our news and information from one side, if we're unable to discern like Daniel what we can accept and what we must reject from both perspectives. I want to share a slide. Here's what we learned from Daniel. Daniel's greatest contribution to Babylonian politics, we'll see this throughout the book, came from his ability to remain distinct from Babylon. In other words, not to assimilate. And so it is with us Christian friends for far too long in our country. Please hear this. The unity and the witness of the church has been compromised because of our political assimilation both to the right and to the left. Our current experience of exile right now offers us a chance to be extracted out of this to rediscover faithfulness to our king Jesus and his kingdom first. We'll say more about that in the weeks to come. But there's another temptation here. If the temptation and the pull to assimilate is so strong, what's the solution? Often Christians throughout history and in many cultures have thought the solution, the best solution is to withdraw, to separate and to avoid all of that in order to keep the faith, to stay out of the evils and the temptations of the world and the culture and all the corruption that can come with politics. But that's not what we see here, is it? Daniel and his friends were the best students in their training program. They knew more about Babylon than their fellow Babylonians did. You know what they studied? They studied Babylonian literature and language, but we see later on in verse 20 they actually studied enchantments and magic. Things that would shock the pious and faithful Israelite. Now to understand, we need to understand this, <laughs> to, to study something, to know it well is not the same thing as embracing it wholesale. Neither did they reject what they learned wholesale because it was just Babylonian and so it was all wrong. No, they discerned a different way. To be faithful, we need to know what people believe and why. Respectfully, not to think because We read one blog post or one article that we can refute a position or repost it. And we need to stop all that. The answer to the temptation to assimilate is not to separate from the culture. We see here from from Daniel, they took a deep dive into the culture to understand it from the inside and even this is true for politics. Daniel and his friends were the best government officials in Babylon. And that's mind blowing to the Jewish reader of the time. It was shocking to the religious purists. Babylon in scripture is the code name for the world system and organization that is aligned against God and his purposes. So what are Daniel and his friends doing here at the top of Babylonian governmental structure? Let me show you in a slide what's even more shocking about this. Here's what's going on. Being in Babylon was actually the cause of a stronger and more resilient faith for Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. Do you see that? Being in Babylon was actually the cause of a stronger and more resilient faith for Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, his friends. Now, here's a bit of the context. When they were back in Babylon, or when they were back in Judah, rather, when they were comfortable in living in their homeland, When they took the temple for granted, the sacrifices and the priesthood was there, the prophets were prophesying around them. The king, at least he professed faith publicly. Uh, He acknowledged God in the Bible. When there was no crisis of exile happening, here's the thing. There is no evidence of a vibrant, firm faith among the royalty and the nobility of Judah, which is where these four guys came from. In fact, there is all the evidence in the world, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the two prophets, to tell us that there was a lack of genuine faith across the board. Now hear this. What this means is that the crisis of exile was part of what created the faith of Daniel and his friends. God used the experience of exile to renew and refine his faith. And as we will see, The exile was also a part of what God wanted to do outside of the land of Israel, outside of his people, to bring the message of his grace and redemption even into Babylon. So, withdrawal may guard against the temptation to assimilate, but it fails on two fronts. It doesn't guard faith, actually, it doesn't produce faith, it actually only produces a weak and untested faith. And in an effort to keep orthodoxy and purity, you end up losing the purpose and the mission God has given to his people to bless the world. So to close on this first point, here here is the test. Let me just drive it home like this. Speak to my Christian friends, the faithful Christian, you'll know them because of this. They will seem like a compromiser to the conservative traditionalist, and they will seem like a religious extremist to the progressive at the same time. This chapter is incredibly important for Christians to identify the temptations we face now, to assimilate or withdraw. But this chapter also gives us the truth we need to remain faithful and not give in to temptation, not to assimilate or withdraw, to be in Babylon, but not of Babylon, and actually to find a way to be for Babylon to bless. The truth we need is simple, yet it is very subtle here in the text. I want to put it up on a slide. Here is the truth. We need in exile. And it's this, you'll see its resemblance to the main message of the book of Daniel. Even when it doesn't look like it, God is in control. Even when we can't see it, God is at work. The most important three words in this chapter are repeated three times. Look at verse two. Look at verse 7, and then look at verse 17. The same three words appear. The Lord gave. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, along with the vessels of his house. The Lord gave Daniel, it says, favor and compassion with his bosses. The Lord gave Daniel and his friends learning and skill and wisdom in the exile in the temptation to eat the king's food, in their training program, God was in control and was at work in all of it. That is what the book of Daniel tells us. That's the truth we need in exile. If there was any time in the Bible where it seemed like God was no longer in control and he was not at work, it was at this time the exile. How could God be at work when the temple was gone? The vessels were carried away from his house. How could God be at work? in such a pagan and terrible king. How could God use this training program in Babylonian ways to further the purpose of his kingdom? Though it appeared that Daniel and his friends were in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, in fact, all the time, chapter one says they were in the hands of God. And that Nebuchadnezzar and all the world were in the hands of God. And he was still at work. Friends, I know, It's really hard to believe this at this time, in a pandemic, in the crisis that it has brought into our lives and into our cities and communities, in all the political fears and all the tensions that are out there, and all the anxieties we have about who is in power, who might be in power, and now all the fires that we're experiencing all around us in our state. You're telling me God is in control and God is at work? Daniel says, yes, God tells us that he is in control, but he doesn't always tell us how he is at work. In fact, he tells us that if he tried to tell us, we wouldn't even believe him. The prophet Habakkuk speaks to the same time period, the time of the Babylonian exile in its first days. He was given a prophecy that this was about to happen. And in chapter one, it's Habakkuk, is seeing this unfold before his eyes, here's what God says to the prophet. He says, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Babylonians. And this Habakkuk didn't understand. He was utterly astounded. Now, when we experience like the exiles of Judah, the loss of normal worship, crises of faith, political idolatry. It is not easy to understand how God is in control and at work. It seems utterly astounding that he could be, but the truth that Daniel gives us is that he is. I found this, uh, this, this hymn, it's actually a, a more recent hymn called God of the Ages, and there's a line here it's a, it's really a prayer to help get this truth into our hearts because though it doesn't seem like God is at work that he is still sovereign and in control he is and subtly the book of daniel tells us behind the scenes often god is at work let me let me um, read this, you could make this your prayer. This is how this truth can get inside of us. Uh, the, the stanza says, God of this morning, gladly your children worship before you, trustingly bow. Teach us to know you always among us, quietly sovereign, Lord of our now. Those last two phrases are so powerful. God is often quietly sovereign. He doesn't bring his sovereignty by force to smash the world into conformity, into obedience. And yet he is always, whatever our now is, he is the Lord of our now. He was the Lord of Daniel's now. He is the Lord of our now. The temptations we face in exile, Daniel shows us. The truth we need in exile, that God is still in control. And there is a triumph we can have when we hold to and believe in this truth. That's my final point. At this time, when a king and nation were were defeated and decimated by another king and nation, it meant more than just a, a national victory. It meant a divine victory. It meant that the nation's gods were victorious over the other nation's gods. That's why the vessels weren't destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, he took them with him into Babylon. It looks like a minor detail, but it's not. What he was doing is putting them up in his trophy room another nation conquered, another victory for me and my God, another championship, another win. Now, when it doesn't seem like it, when we can't see it and everything we can see and everything we do feel seems to point to God not being in control, that God doesn't seem like he is winning, not at work, that he is actually losing when it looks like our faith just needs to be put on the trophy shelf of COVID, or political chaos, or the internal crises we're feeling, that our faith seems like a relic, that it isn't real, that it isn't powerful enough, whatever it might be, what can we do to keep believing and to hold to faith? Is there a way to triumph? Daniel says there is. The answer is actually hidden in the little verse at the very end of chapter 1, verse 1. 21 let me read that verse it says and daniel was there until the first year of king cyrus the answer is hidden there that's how we can triumph what is this saying cyrus is the name of the persian king who took down the babylonian empire 70 years after daniel showed up in babylon And he is the king who allowed the Jewish people to begin to return home from exile and rebuild the temple. So here it is, Daniel, this, this kid, this young kid who was kidnapped and subjugated and forced into conformity into Babylonian culture and thought, Daniel, this guy outlasted, not just the mighty Nebuchadnezzar, but the entire kingdom of Babylon itself. Babylon, one of the world's greatest empires, so strong, seemingly invincible, seemingly victorious over the people of God and God's kingdom, yet it faded away and Daniel lasted. The question is who won? The triumph we can have in exile comes from knowing who won and how they won. Let me share a quick illustration. Uh, this It's like this. Uh, I know many of us are Lakers fans here. Uh, my wife is a huge Lakers fan. So we watched the Lakers and they began this series with a loss to the Houston Rockets. And it wasn't looking good. It was a bad loss. And now can you imagine when a team beats another team, in a a playoff series, playoff basketball, and they celebrate that game one victory. Yeah, we did it. This is amazing. And there's great triumph. And they think that they've put the trophy on their shelf already. Well, the Lakers have come back and won three straight, and it looks like a fourth victory is imminent. The point is you can't celebrate one victory because the series isn't over. In this little verse, the triumph of Daniel in one twenty-one points us to the greater triumph of Jesus Christ. It may seem like there's a game one loss. It may seem like things are not moving in the direction of the triumph and the victory of God. Yet, Daniel says what we're seeing might be a game one loss, but the series isn't over. And the series is in the hands of God. Now, let, let me explain it like this. How, it's not a perfect illustration, but let me explain this according to history, another way to look at this. How do we know anything about Nebuchadnezzar and the great empire of Babylon? That at once was one of history's greatest kingdoms. How do we even know about that? We had to dig it out of the sand, right? We had to dig out Babylonian tablets and pottery just to understand that this civilization once was the top power in the entire world, that it's long gone. And no one today is a loyal follower of Nebuchadnezzar or the Babylonians. Despite his great power and all his trophies and his amazing program of indoctrination, he would be lost in history if we had not dug him out of the sand. On the other hand, how do we know anything about Jesus Christ? whom as Christians we claim is king, king of king, lord of lords, and in his kingdom and in his hands, uh, the world is, is formed, the world is held. How do we know anything about Jesus Christ? Well, lots of ways, but the most obvious one is that there are millions, billions of people of all nations and all backgrounds who swear their allegiance to follow Jesus as their king, despite him not forcing anyone, not conquering Rome, not holding any political office ever. How is this possible? How did Jesus triumph? How did he win in this way? Colossians 2 says it like this, describes the triumph of the gospel. It says, Jesus erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. And it might be better translated to say he triumphed over them, the rulers and the authorities in it, meaning in the cross, what looked like a loss. The cross, the exile of Jesus into darkness, into suffering, where it seemed like those who had rejected him, that they won the religious leaders of the day, the Roman Empire of the day. Yet, Acts 4 tells us that this was all a part of the predetermined plan of God that God was not losing. In fact, he was gaining his greatest triumph in the cross. In the cross, Jesus redeemed the world. He achieved the greatest victory, even when it seemed like the world had won. He disgraced and shamed the rulers and authorities because out of the exile of the cross, the worst evil the world could do, God brought the greatest good the world could ever Receive and imagine redemption, forgiveness, and entrance into his everlasting kingdom. A triumph over sin, suffering, death for all who believe. That is the way that God won. And the kingdoms and the nations of this world will come and go. Babylon, Greek, uh, Greece, Rome, Persia. And even the kingdoms that exist now. Even the leaders that exist now. The crises of this world will come and go, but the people of God can endure, can maintain faith, even in times of exile because of the triumph of Jesus. It doesn't take away all the hurt and the pain and the tears and the suffering and the internal difficulties and the external difficulties. And it doesn't take away the temptations of exile now, but it is the way we can triumph now. And it is even in difficulty and suffering, the way that we can display that triumph to the world. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, thanks be to God, and Paul was suffering at this time, he was in a time of difficulty, he said, thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. How we hold on to faith in his triumph until the exile is over and how we spread his triumph to others is by following in the triumphal victory of our Savior Jesus. One final thought on that. You know, if we know who wins and how he wins, if this is how Jesus gains the victory through suffering love, if this is how Jesus gains the victory as a servant who looks like he's losing yet he's winning. If this is how Jesus gains the victory, not through force and might, but through meekness and gentleness, it means this is how today, this is how today we move forward and display the victory of Jesus to others, even as we go through this exile, this crisis. Daniel, it says determined, right? In verse eight, he said in his heart with strong conviction, he would not defile himself with the king's food or the the wine he drank. This was firm conviction. And he held to it strongly, but it wasn't just what he did in terms of his firm conviction not to assimilate. It was how he did it. There is a right way to do the right thing. We learn from Daniel. Daniel shows us as he shared this conviction with his boss. And as he came up with a a strategy, a way to share with his boss, and then the guards that were watching over him, he said, here's what, here's what I want to do. And what you see from that is that both of them wanted to say yes to Daniel. How could that be? These Babylonian officials, why did they want to say, yeah, Daniel, let's do this experiment. We'll give you only vegetables and we'll see how it goes for 10 days. Clearly, Daniel had won them over by his gentleness and his respect. You know, it's possible, Daniel shows us, to be absolutely firm in our convictions and belief and not have hard edges, but to be gentle to hold those convictions with respect amongst a world and a culture that may disagree with us. Contrary to so much of what we see, often from Christians, it is not only possible to have firm convictions and soft edges, it is commanded in scripture. It is essential in exile. I want you to consider that, friends, but as we begin the book of Daniel, here is the message. We trust in the triumph of Jesus, not only to hold on to our faith, when it seems like everything around us is in crisis. But even in that, we can spread the aroma of Jesus to those who need hope in exile. This is the good news. (laughs) That God has not forgotten us. That God is at work, even when it doesn't appear so. And even when it seems like he is losing. In fact, he is gaining a greater victory in us and through us. Let's pray that he would do that even now. Pray with me, friends. Father, we thank you for this book that we're about to study this fall. We thank you for this chapter and we pray. And I pray the ways that we are tempted right now, whether it is to just withdraw and give up or it's to assimilate and we don't even realize it, would you convict us? And keep us from those temptations and remind us of the great truth that you are in control. It's hard for us to see that now, but I pray you would remind us through the truth and the power of the gospel that even, Lord, when it seems like you're absent and not working, when it seems dark and it seems like you're distant, that you are present and at work. Would you remind us of that? would you plant it deep in our hearts so that not only would we remain faithful, but we would be able to display and witness to the faith in a way that we hold firm to what you've called us to hold firm to. But we are gentle, winsome, and gracious to those who need to know that there is a God above, there is grace beyond all the struggle that we experience. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus.
0: Amen.